Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. dedicate the talk tonight to uh, Myokyo and Leonard Cohen and uh, all my new Zen friends in Montreal. Uh, once in a while you, you um, uh, see so many people practicing this practice and once in a while you see people who practice the spirit of this practice and it's so rare. You know, I think we, we do this practice and we get so hung up on form and um, <clears throat> and uh, the form is really important, but sometimes we forget what the form is pointing at. And uh, I had a nice time this weekend in Montreal and listening to the Zen community there and all their hard work. The focus of their practice these days is creating poetry festivals. <laughs> and uh, I think it's just so fantastic and inspiring. And... Um, um, I thought it, it would fit to dedicate the talk tonight because we're, we're doing part two of case 12 from the Mumon Khan. I hope that you've been practicing this this week. Um, some of you weren't here, so I'll, I'll start from the beginning. Every day, Riyawan would call out to himself, Master, and would answer, Yes, yes. Be awake, be alert, he told himself. And every day he answered, yes, yes, yes. Don't be deluded, not now, not ever. Yes, yes, okay. That's the whole koan. <laughs> Do you want to hear it again? This translation is a little different than the one I used last week. Every day, Riyawan, in Japanese, Ziguan, would call out to himself, Master, Grant, Monica, Ronit, yes, yes, yes. Every day he, he answered, yes, yes. And he told himself, uh, okay, yes, I'm, I'm paying attention. And then he would say to himself, uh, be awake, be alert. Okay, okay, yes. Uh, don't be deluded, or don't be fooled. Not now, not ever. Okay. It's traditional to read Mumon's comment after you read uh, one of Mumon's koans, but instead I'm going to read Mike Holboom's comment, because he's in Prague and he can't be here. When I walk into a new room, I like to do it on the tips of my toes, on point, like a ballet dancer. This is true, by the way. And bend my back like a horse. I like to resemble a question mark whenever I see a new face, a new encounter, a never-met city. I want to open to what's happening without knowing all about it beforehand, without a map, without signs to lead me along the way. But there is part of me that is a master. Master! And the function of my master is twofold. First, my master likes to survey the field, likes to get real far away from everything, so he can take a lay of the land. And then he likes to own everything he sees, and he does so by naming it. 
He names and controls and holds forth. He's the quick-witted opinion maker, the disher of received wisdom, the regurgitation machine. Master! My master throws a shadow over his experiences, ensuring he will never have them, keeping unwanted feelings at a safe distance. And the second my master does this, a bottom is produced. For every top there's a bottom. Oh, yes, master. Thank you, master. What else can I do for you, master? So I think most of us, this is the first way we experience the master, which is not really experiencing the master. It's experiencing the superego, you know, the control tower. And I don't know about you, but when I try and do this koan, which is a very practical practice, um, the first time I say, are you awake? The first answer is like, no. But you can't answer no, because as soon as you say, are you awake, something that hasn't been awake is stunned. And so the only answer you can say is, yes, yes, sometimes just out of embarrassment that you were caught. <laughs> um, are you awake, master? And I would get great e I got so many good emails this week. One of them was, my partner's downstairs yelling at herself at the desk. <laughs> Master! <laughs> Does anybody want to comment about their practice before I keep going? Did anybody do this practice? Yeah, Barson. Question, actually. Yeah. Can you be, can you, can you think you're awake, but uh -huh. not and also, yeah. second question is, do you have a, uh, what do you do with, what do you do with the wakefulness? Uh-huh. Is there a responsibility to, uh, yeah. to it? Yes. Funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, I, can I read you a quote? Tonight, I'm just going to read other people's words tonight. I don't have too many of my own. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his name. George Monbiot? Or is it? Monbiot? Yeah, he wrote a great book called Heat. This is a, a, an article from three weeks ago in The Guardian. Our social identity is shaped by values that psychologists classify as extrinsic or intrinsic. So values that are extrinsic or intrinsic. Extrinsic values concern status and self-advancement. People with a strong set of extrinsic values fixate on how others see them. They cherish financial success, image, and fame. Intrinsic values concern relationship with friends, family, community, and self-acceptance. Those who have a strong set of intrinsic values are not dependent on praise or reward from other people. They have beliefs that transcend their self-interest. Few people are all extrinsic or all intrinsic. Our social identity is formed by a mixture of values. But psychological tests in almost 70 countries shows that values cluster in remarkably consistent patterns is the part I like. Those who strongly value financial success have less empathy, stronger manipulative tendencies, a stronger attraction to hierarchy and inequality, stronger prejudices towards strangers, and less concern about human rights and the environment. Those with a strong sense of self-acceptance have more empathy greater concern for human rights, social justice, and the environment. These values suppress each other. The stronger someone's extrinsic aspirations, the weaker, the weaker his or her intrinsic goals. Uh, the way I would talk about this is how waking up or catching ourselves when we're stuck is not only about trying to come out of self-centeredness, but it's also about cultivating social equanimity, an equanimity that's pro-social, 
where we move into the world with a sense of attraction to the world, of wanting to do something. So it's not like you wake up and you kind of like trip out on how beautiful everything is. <laughs> you wake up and then you, you feel because of how you're moved by your connection to interdependence or your intrinsic values uh, to do something. Um, uh, before she died, I, I spent the last two years uh, uh, with Esther Myers, who was a wonderful yoga teacher in the city, who was also actually my cousin. Um, and uh, we had lunch every other week for the year uh, leading up to her death. And uh, we would go to Kensington Kitchen for an hour, have lunch, and then we would go to the bookstores and buy each other books. <laughs> and uh, one thing she used to always say is that she used to say, everything that you do, when you're teaching, when you're talking, when you're moving, is creating values in yourself and in the people around you. Everything that you do shows value. The way I like to say this is, you know, what are you committed to? What you're committed to shows in how you live your life. And intrinsic value is what we're cultivating in this practice. So to respond to the second part of your question, wherever you are, Parson, um, you know, it's, I think it's really crucial that um, the more we commit to waking up, um, the more we realize that two things happen. One is we give less attention to the parts of us that are in the self-centered vortex, which we all have, um, but also that we see that the less attention we give to uh, extrinsic values, which I would associate with self-centeredness, um, the more that generosity just naturally arises, kindness naturally arises. And um, that's why I really like to think of this path as a, as a real pro-social path and not as a path of withdrawal. Um, and this is such an important point that I think we talk about every, every week. Let me read um, the comment on this koan, and then, and then we'll keep going, Sarah. Uh, Mumon's comment. Old Riyawan sells himself and buys himself. He stages a theater, and he plays all the masks. Wearing masks, he calls, and he answers. It's not God that's answering or some higher self. It's just he answers. A master mask and a mask that says he will never be deceived. If a mask sticks to you, you lose your true face. If a mask sticks to you, you lose your true face. If you play like Riyawan, you can be like a fox. In another uh, uh, translation says, you can have an imagination like a fox. I don't know what a fox's imagination would be like, but I imagine it's foxy. So this is a nice way of thinking about this koan, right? It's a play. It's a play, and he's switching masks. Master, and he answers himself, yes, are you awake? Yes. And I think I mentioned this last week, but uh, Riyawan was also a great teacher, and uh, the way he taught his community was he would ascend the high seat, which was, you know, traditionally the teacher supposed to be sitting up on a high seat. And um, he would get up there and he would just say, Master, are you awake? Yes, yes. Really awake? Yes, yes. Don't be fooled. And that was his talk. <laughs> that was the whole talk. Yeah. I really like um, well, in keeping with this theme of like intrinsic versus extrinsic value, I've, I've actually been like kind of struggling with this question myself lately, though, um, about how to strike a balance between the two. And particularly, like I think of um, the activist community mm -hmm. and how quickly people engaged in it will disenfranchise themselves by like not having adequate financial like income and resources yeah. and stuff like that and like and how do you I don't know like I just I just 
have been kind of struggling that with that myself, like, um, like finding the correct balance between like knowing that there is a degree to which um, relationship with those things are highly problematic in such an obvious way, yeah. but then also trying to like like uh, one friend said it best when she finally like got a real job and was like um, just being disenfranchised doesn't help your community. <laughs> like that it makes you feel like an activist if you're suffering a little bit. Or yeah. Whatever, but You know, I, I've been lately starting to, to talk to people uh, who uh, are always coming on retreat uh, who don't have any money. You know, I don't have any money. Is there some kind of exchange that we can do? You know? And, you know, four years later, uh, we have to acknowledge, you know, there is a certain uh, amount of uh, leisure time we need, a certain amount of money we need, which is really not so much. Um, Certain basic needs need to be met before we can really practice. And I think if those needs are not met, um, we're not really doing a practice that's working with our whole life. Um, and that's really, really important. And um, that's part of our practice. And that's also part of the social fabric. you know. And at the same time, when a community is working in a way where uh, people are you know, being transparent with their... Uh, conduct and their livelihood and so on, then when people who sometimes do do well um, and lose their status also have a net. They have a place where other people can come and support them. So it works both ways. I think this is really important. But I think there's a whole other level which uh, Michael Lerner calls surplus powerlessness, which is the powerlessness that sometimes a lot of uh, people feel where they're kind of constantly critiquing their position um, and don't have intrinsic values. And you see this a lot in the activist community. You know, I just learned last night, I didn't know this, but that uh, leading up to the G8 and the G20, that, you know, most of the groups uh, who had a lot of activists arrested um, had uh, uh, detectives planted in those groups. Uh, months, some up to nine months in advance of the G8 and the G20. And the way they planted officers in the groups, which are, they went to the group and they looked at the demographic of the group. So let's say there was a group that, you know, is a, is a group of all white kids from Guelph. Uh, so they, they sent in a young black kid as the uh, uh, undercover detective. Um, so it fed in to the young white kids critiquing their own privilege and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you should be in our group. We don't have a black person. We don't have an Asian person. We don't have a Korean person. And um, almost all the detectives that were planted in these activist communities um, were the opposite of the main demographic of the community. Cops are smart. <laughs> And so this, and this feeds right in to the place where we're not awake and we rely on extrinsic values. Just because you're an activist or you're on the left doesn't mean your values are any more intrinsic. You can still have values that, you know, determine that, um, you know, hierarchy is not something you value. And at the same time, your inner life can be very hierarchical and very stiff and... Um, the, the politics on the outside don't determine what's going on on the inside. And uh, the two have to be balanced. You know? We can't wear one mask or it sticks to our face. And so to live a life of good conduct, um, we have to recognize uh, you know, both where our values lie and the imperfectness of our environment and how our values need to be able to, to switch. We need to put on another mask, and another mask, and another mask. Does this make sense? <laughs> Anyone else? How is your, your con? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just working with um, the 
whole idea of looking up as a value, as though it's superior to any other state. Yeah. And um, I mean, whether it starts a chain of judgment, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that waking is better than non-waking. Yeah. Or is it just the idea to notice whether you awake or to what degree you awake? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know whether it's better. I'm having, you know, I'm working with that one because then it's. Yeah. I don't see it as better. I see it as just yeah. another state. Uh huh. Well, we're we're calling not being awake, not necessarily sleeping, right. but just unconsciousness. Right, but we catch ourselves in moments, right? Yes. And that moment is what we're calling waking up, and hopefully those moments of waking up start linking together, so that being awake gives rise to being engaged and gives rise to generosity, and gives rise to the ability to not be asleep in a viewpoint, or in a fixed or rigid position. Including being compassionate to those who are still asleep. Exactly the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Awake is to, is to uh, meet our society and ourselves and the natural world with kindness and equanimity and generosity, and to be responsive. So the word awake, I say, would encapsulate all of that. Today I made a little list because I, I wanted to give like practical steps of how to work with this koan, and I think this feeds right in. So here's the list. Okay? I, I don't like lists. Most of you know I don't like lists, but here's the list. Um, number one, assume nothing. Master. And so in that moment, master... Assume nothing. Don't assume that you're asleep. Don't assume that you're awake. Don't assume that you know. Don't assume that you don't know. Number two, release everything. Whatever your position you're holding on to, release it. And number three, ask the koan deeply. Who am I? Martine Batchelor, when she was here, gave a, a nice cone, which is, what is this? Which is a Korean cone. Yeah. So like another level to this, this story is when you ask yourself, who am I? Or are you awake? In this, in this, it's, are you awake? Or don't get fooled. Don't get fooled. The person who's asking and the person who's answering um, is you. Conditional you, relative you. And what it shows you is as soon as you answer, that you that answer is gone. And that you that answer changes. And in the next moment when you answer, and there's three questions here, so there's three yous that answer. And what's nice about this koan is it doesn't posit that the person who answers is some higher self or some witness or something. What happens is the person who answer answers three times. And it's three different people that get a chance to answer. And so it's three different masks that answer and that there's nothing behind the mask. That all you are is the mask. And your ability to move with the mask or the ability for the mask to not be identified with the face is what we call awakening. Is what we call being awake or not being asleep. There's a little poem about this I want to read full of quotes today. Thank you to my friends in Montreal for this little poem book. If it wasn't colder than Toronto, I would say we should all just <laughs> move there. This is by David Budbill, uh, who lives in Vermont. It's called Bugs in a Bowl. Um, Hanshan that great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl. All day, going around, never leaving the bowl. I say, that's right. Every day, climbing up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, 
around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around, see your fellow bugs. Walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Nice bowl. <laughs> He has another poem that I liked here. Better, better to have less. The less you have, the less you'll lose when it comes time to lose it all. <laughs> nice bowl. <laughs> um, traditionally, whenever there's a koan, there's also a, a capping poem. Here's the poem. Some on this path cannot see the truth. They look forward in dusty mirrors. Their reflections are the seed of life and death. Fools take it to be the truth. How many of us don't see the bull or the mirrors that we're looking in are dusty, full of habit, asleep? So this cone is trying to do that. Wake you up. There was another hand up somewhere. Yeah. I was just going to ask you what some of you said that there's nothing but the mask. In the commentary you read earlier, it said if you suck at a mask, then yeah. you lose your true face. Yeah. But that's not to say that there's nothing behind the mask. It's just that if you only wear one mask, then you're changing to cover. Yeah. Um, yes and no. Um, there's the, 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 what the true or original self is behind the mask is not defined here. So there's just a sense of this person buying and selling masks. Some of you have heard me quote this. It's one of my favorite quotes by Carl Jung. He says, you know, there's nothing wrong with a persona. The word persona is the Greek word for mask. There's nothing wrong with a persona as long as you have a lot of them. Right? So there's nothing wrong with the mask as long as it doesn't stick. And, I, and you know, and I don't know about you, but you know, for me, when I first started uh, you know, trying to be spiritual, I was trying to get rid of my mask. And I found that what I was really trying to do was actually just be the same person all the time. You know, as if there was like an original self. And really, the original self is a negation it's pointing at something that's not there. And you only know it when you're there. And you only know it sometimes between masks. You've, you've taken off a mask, and then you see the next one coming. And you know, this is what happens, especially for those of you who, you know, I know some of you spend a lot of time lately, you know, going on retreat. It's one of the things that happens on retreat, you know, is, is eventually you start to see not just that thoughts kind of pass away, um, but also you can start to see thoughts before they start arising. You know, enough spaciousness happens in awareness where you can actually start to see like the next mass coming before it's even there. And uh, this is a really interesting thing when it happens is, is the mind gets so quiet that you can see the mask as if it's like pixels starting to come together before it's there. And then I think when that happens, you can appreciate it. You can appreciate these masks. Every story we have is a mask. It's a mask that we wear. Sometimes we create the story so that other people see the mask. And sometimes the mask is a set of eyes that we're using to look out at the world. But when the mask sticks to our face, we don't, we don't see the bowl. We're just sliding up, sliding down, you know. Does anybody get like this? Can you picture the little bug holding its face in its hand? Like... So that's why I'm suggesting, you know, one way to work with this is, you know, all day, when you're bored, Master, 
Or, you know, I, I think it's good, like, if you, I don't know if there's such a thing, I'm sure you can, there's an app for this, but, you know, <laughs> is to have, like, a timer that rings, like, at different times in the day, and any time it rings, just go, Master, and ask the question, and I encourage you last week, and I'm sure many of you didn't do this, but try doing it out loud. So it's not like... <laughs> Try to really, really say it, like, master, you know. Uh, I suggest some people to use your first name, you know, Judy. But um, uh, people respond saying, oh, I like master better. And don't try and look at what's behind the mask. Because when you try and look at what's behind the mask, that becomes a mask. Trying to find what's behind the mask hoping that we'll find what's behind the mass. Just like these scientists with too much money spinning atoms around under the mountains in Switzerland, you know, <laughs> crashing things together, trying to find what's underneath the strings. I need to know, you know, what's, let's spend $9 billion finding out what's vibrating under the strings. It's the same question, like, what is the essence? What is the essence? And if you don't try and look for the essence, you just have masks slipping on, slipping off. It's okay. All you are is a mask. All you are is a mask. Have you ever had times in your life where you, you don't have a mask? Try going through the world without a mask. You get crushed. <laughs> Any other comments or questions, Pat? I like the comment in the commentary where he says he buys himself and sells himself. Yeah. I think that's so lovely. Yeah. You know, like it's kind of when you said, you know, don't buy the mask. I guess. Yeah. Like, don't buy your thoughts. Don't yeah. buy who you believe yourself to be. Yeah. And then he sells himself. He gives himself away. Yeah. 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 You know, when you try and think of yourself, mm. this is like a good thought experiment. Mm -hmm. I once had a teacher who said to me, if your mind is really busy and you can't separate from thinking to find your breathing, then just go into the thought and try and finish the thought. <laughs> like get so concentrated that you just, it's like saying finish every sentence. I'm like this with my son these days. He has like seven sentences going at the same time. <laughs> like just finish that sentence and then pause the next sentence. You know. um, that's a good exercise to try and concentrate enough that you actually finish a thought until you feel like it's done. Yeah. Um, so when you try and think of yourself, or you try and think of what your you know original self is, you don't get very far because you can't think your way there. And so what's nice about buying and selling yourself is it just. It says, you, you know, the trying to get behind the self is just more self-making, yeah. you know. And instead, just to see the masks slipping on and slipping off. And then the value here is, and then you have an imagination like a fox. Fox, can you see like a fox with dream bubbles? <laughs> Probably, I imagine the, the brain of a fox sees like northern lights all the time. <laughs> So the master is vastness, it's awareness, it's an original self, it's true nature, it's eternal, and it's also this guy, Riyawan, in China in the 17th century, that you are interconnected with everything, that you are free, that you have an, a, a natural resource, which is awareness, and you are this conditioned relative person trying to get up the bowl, trying to climb out and going around in circles. And then, you know, hopefully when you do this practice for a while, you can get pretty high up the bowl and slide down and <laughs> meet other people and, you know, jump on other bugs. Bug love. 
It's really the goal of this practice. <laughs> Bug love. Imagine how big a mask is on a bug. <laughs> Was there a, a hand up somewhere back there? Yeah. So the description that you just gave of the master. Yeah. The three U's? You mentioned the three U's. Did I? Just no, you said he was just in the colon when they ask the three questions, it's asking three different U's. Oh, three different U's. Oh, yeah, because the master is always changing. You know? The master's nature, the master's. It's both. Everybody. If you want to define what the master is, you have to put on a mask. Uh, just don't let it stick to you. You can accept it, you can love it, you can hate it. But just don't let the mask stick to you. You see, it's really frustrating because as soon as you say there's a mask, then you want to say there's something behind the mask that is the truth. But your true self, which is a, a pop term in psychology, maybe that Winnicott started, is not the opposite of your false self. The true self is an absence. It's an absence of self. But it's not the end of you. It's the functioning you that a mask doesn't stick to. Okay? So sometimes the master is an awareness that is really uh, centered and does not take the shape of what's in front of it. And sometimes the master is just the person peeling the mask off. And sometimes the master is the person suffering from having a mask stuck to them. But if you then try and find out who the master is, you can only do that from the perspective of the mask. You see? You just, you can't pull the mask off and see like, Whatever. I don't even remember what's under that big black mask. Yeah. What's his name? What's his name? Anakin. Anakin, yeah. Uh huh. And that's another mask. That's another mask. So um, when you say to like observe the mask that you're putting on and then to notice them and then observe the next one that comes, if you notice that you're about to put on a mask, is like say limiting you from really connecting with someone that's yeah. really close to you. Yeah. Is it okay to say, okay, maybe not that mask and choose another one? <laughs> 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 that's so good. Yeah, I, I mean I would have a lot to learn from you if you can do that. <laughs> um, usually we don't recognize the mask until it's stuck. But what I was saying about you know long-term practice is you actually start to see yourself reaching for the mask. You know, or the mask coming all by itself. Because in some conditions, we don't put on the mask. Other people put on the mask. You know, it's called transference and countertransference. Because some people put a mask on us whether we like it or not. You know? And part of our job sometimes in relationship is to say, look at the mask you've put on me. I don't want to wear this mask. So let me move this. And sometimes I'll wear it for you if you really need that. But... I want to wear this mask when we're doing this together. And you know, when we're out at you know, a restaurant, I'll wear this mask for you. And when we're at your family's house, I'll wear this mask for you. And it's kind of fun for me. But when you want a mask that's fixed, then that's codependence. Codependence only works if there's like two masks. Yeah. And we depend on each other's um, image self-image. Um, and that's why, you know, I came up with, I don't know if these make any sense, but assume nothing, um, release everything, and then ask deeply, where am I here? Where, where am I here? You know, so, sometimes we're stuck with a mask and it gets taken from us. You know, I, I am a lawyer. I'm a successful lawyer. And then something changes in the firm, there's a new partner or whatever, and you're out. 
You're out. And, you, and, and the mask is taken. And then who am I if I'm not a lawyer? You know, who am I? What am I? Where am I? How am I? Or you could say, what is this? And then what you do is you, you become a question mark. And, you know, what we're trying to do in this practice is we're trying to raise all of our little activities to a kind of cosmic level. You know, in Judaism, uh, when you enter a house, uh, the first thing you do is you pay attention to a threshold. And you do this because on the top of the, the door, on the right-hand side, there is a mezuzah. There is a little, usually it's a nice piece of art, and inside it is housed a scroll, and there are special, uh, um, uh, I don't know what they're, yeah, but I don't know what the people are called. Who, they're like scribes who, who write prayers that are on those scrolls. And the idea is to stop you and to give attention to that moment where you're crossing the threshold. The same way before we eat a meal, I spoke about this last week, we say, you know, uh, in order to eat a meal, I'm killing. I'm killing little bugs on the broccoli, all those little bugs at the bottom of the bowl. Um, I might eat one or two of them. I killed a fish, you know, and so we say, um, I'm imperfect, and I am taking life so that I can creatively nourish other life. So we recognize we're not pure, but our intention is to serve life. Another uh, gata before a meal is um, to uh, atone for your greed, so that when you start eating, you don't eat with greed. You eat just enough, so you don't take more than you need. And what do you do with these prayers? You use these prayers to raise the experience up. And this is kind of the function of healthy religion in our life, is to have prayer and have ritual and have practice that, that, that give meaning back to small moments. You know, in Japanese Soto Zen, there are prayers that you do even before you bathe, saying, when I wash this body, I'm washing the whole universe. I'm washing the whole... When I sweep this room, I sweep my mind, and I sweep a corner of this world. And on this street, you know, there are a lot of uh, Asian families on this street. And at this time of year, they're out there every morning sweeping the sidewalk so slowly, sweeping the leaves off into the garden. And it's, I, I love walking down the road when they're all out there in the morning sweeping. I just get this feeling, and I just kind of let them sweep me, you know, when I walk through. And, uh, and this is the function of coming together, even on Tuesday nights like this. At some level, we might be saying, oh, you know, I'm just stressed, and I need, you know, a little bit of time to just, like, sit still. And, or, like, I'm lonely, and I like seeing all these other people, even though they never talk to me. Um, <laughs> but at, at a deeper level, you know, you come here, and there's a ritual. You walk in the door a certain way, you put your shoes down, and we try and, you know, uh, decrease the amount of ritual so that uh, people feel that they can really practice here without committing to a certain belief system or something. But we work on you over the years. And, uh, and then what happens is we, we start really enjoying the ritual. We say, you know, at the end of the meditation practice, to not bow starts to feel a little funny. And when we bow, we're not, you're not bowing to me. We're bowing to this one body, this experience. And then you bow and, and, and you make yourself a little small in relationship to this experience. And then you get back up and you're in the mask again. And it's okay. And so th this is kind of the function of this practice in our life. Assume nothing. Assume nothing. But then at the same time, let go and then act. And then act. 
you still eat the meal. Any other comments? We have a few, a few more minutes. Oh, I wanted to quote this. Uh, Robert Aitken Roshi, who died this year, who's, who's 93. Um, some of you might have seen when he died on the internet, there was this great picture of him with a sign-up that just says, The System Stinks. <laughs> and uh, if you don't know who Robert Aitken is and you're taking the precepts course, we're going to be using his book, Mind of Clover, as the, the central focus of that course. He has a comment, a one-sentence comment on this koan. And what he says is, um, this koan is about returning to the reality that dignity deserves. It's very interesting. As if one of the basic values is dignity. And when we return to present experience, when we see what mask uh, has been sticking to our face. When we say, are you awake? And then we say, yes. That moment is a moment of returning to dignity. Or what George Mon- Monbiot uh, calls intrinsic value. Intrinsic value. Self-care, self-compassion, and then enough care for ourselves that we can forget about ourselves and really be touched by those around us. You know, I've never come to center of gravity, really, from the outside. But, you know, I've been to a lot of communities. You know, every week I'm in a different community in some place in the world. And, uh, you know, I used to always have this really, like, I'm not joining. <laughs> so I, I hope the practice is good. But if anyone comes near me around joining or something, <laughs> I'm out, you know. And how many years it takes to, to recognize just like the position of being a non-joiner. And then what part of me gets left out from community by not wanting to join. And how I get to keep my, I get to know myself. I'm a, I'm a you know, independent operator, you know? And then to see that, you know, even the word independent means independence, you know? The more you try and be an individual, the more you start looking like everyone else. And there's a point in your life where that becomes not interesting anymore, you know? And then you realize that this practice is not about joining. Most of the people who come here are non-joiners. That's why you're here. You're a non-joiner. And, yeah. and I think you feel in me non, non-joiner. And so it's okay. So you can come here and be like, I've joined the non-joiner. And like, I'm in. I'm in. And then some other mass comes in and goes, don't be too in because you have to be like the non-joiner of the non-joiner. And then over time, we start to see, you know what? All these people around me have been practicing a few years, and they've really committed. They're working with the precepts. They're meditating every day. And, like, they've got some friendships. And the practice is working. And then you start to practice more. And then you realize that it's not about joining or non-joining. It's about living a religious life. Living a religious life free of religion. Using prayer. Using your body. Using our relationships. Teachers, students, 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 teachers, teachers, lineages, non-lineages. Someone said to me in Montreal, you know, what lineage is your sangha? And I said, we can't decide between Kuan Yin and Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> And they're like, I want to be part of that lineage. And I said, you are part of that lineage. And I'm like, okay, I feel good then. There's nothing for you to join. In fact, what we're doing here is we're, you know, we're letting the thing that we've overjoined kind of come apart a little bit. Is overjoin a word? I don't know. Pat's looking at me like, that is not a word. Um, to, to come apart so we can be free. So we can be free. And the paradox is to really explore that freedom. We need to practice. 
We need a practice that really pays attention to our conduct in the world, creating social equanimity, social engagement. We also need a practice that values friendship. We need a practice of communication. So you're not just sitting getting enlightened on your cushion, but that you're also learning about the value of relationship to open us up. And also that you have an art practice because we need a practice that puts us in touch with that place in us that needs to be surprised. And I'm not talking about plastic arts like you have to hang things in art galleries, <laughs> but that you have an art practice. You have something you do every day that surprises you. You know, it can be cooking. There are so many ways to have an art practice. So this is what we're joining. And when you do that, you're joining the Allen Ginsberg lineage. <laughs> I think we should have a mezuzah on the door here with a scroll with a picture of Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> we'll have to find a scribe who can make that happen. So the last thing I'll say is that, you know, this practice, you hear about practice, this practice. Practice is not a big mystery. It's really not. It's so practical. And all it is is a technique to help us remember. To remember what's important, to have intrinsic values. And I think once in a while, we need to look at the practice we have and to see, is it really working? You know, have I fallen for the form? Have I fallen for someone else's story about what this practice will deliver? Or am I really practicing in a way that's opening me up deepening my friendships and creating a life of creativity, of compassion. So this is what I hope you'll work with as you continue. Master. Yes. Don't get fooled. Not now, not ever. So let's finish chanting. <laughs> <laughs>